Hi, welcome to episode eight of Sparks of Madness. Uh, thanks for listening, um, and thanks especially to those of you who are regular listeners. We don't have a huge number of listeners yet, but um, we do seem to have some people who are listening to every week or discovering it and then listening back to previous episodes, so I really appreciate that. This week we are speaking to um, one of my best friends on the comedy circuit um, locally in the north and actually someone who was uh, already a good friend of mine before I embarked on on trying stand-up comedy as a, a second career or a hobby or whatever you want to call it. Um, in fact, if he hadn't been about to try it, I'm not sure I would have tried it, or certainly his being involved in the comedy course that I did as another participant made it a hell of a lot easier, partly because he offered me lifts back from the course, which was great, uh, but also just because... Um, he's someone whose opinion I trusted and, and we get on really well so we were able to kind of shoot the breeze talk about all of the stuff that we learned you know exchange ideas and views and reassure each other that we weren't both shit um, so that was good um, and uh, the guest this week is Jem Stewart he's someone I've known for I think three years now we actually met at a community event in Batley in West Yorkshire which was set up in memory or celebration of the life of uh, the murdered MP Joe Cox and we've both remained quite active in local events um, to designed to um, bring the community together foster community cohesion uh, we both have um, uh, a very strong uh, distaste and dislike for some of the nastier side of political rhetoric from the right, I would say. Um, although Jem's response quite often is to rise above it and not sink to their level, whereas I tend to just call them dickheads and tell them to go fuck themselves. So we have a very different approach to that kind of thing. Um, but the reason Jem's on this podcast is, as well as being an occasional stand-up comedian, and if he's listening, do it more, you're very good. Um, he's also a, a poet uh, who performs his poetry live regularly. That's what he was doing at the event that we met at. Um, and um, he is someone who is a recovering alcoholic, who's very open about his alcoholism, and in fact... Um, has almost reinvented himself in later life professionally as uh, an addiction counsellor specialising in, in counselling those people with alcohol addiction. So um, he kind of has a foot in both camps, if you like, for this podcast. He's, he's able to talk about his own experiences, but also generally about addiction and the links between addiction and mental health so we're joining the dots here between um, addiction mental health and performance um, so I think it's a really interesting podcast he's a great guy he's one of my best friends we're often uh, we often joke that we're like father and son because he's bald and beardy as well and we both have a, a propensity to wear what other people might call shit shirts um, loud shirts that make up for some sort of character deficiency generally um, but Love him to bits. I think you'll love him too. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Thanks. Okay, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome for this episode of Sparks of Madness um, my very good friend, um, Mr. Jem Stewart. Jem, how are you doing? I'm very well indeed, Graham. How's yourself? I'm grand. I'm grand, mate. And uh, I'm missing you like mad. It was... Uh, it was uh, nice to just hear your voice a few moments ago because I think it's well, it's easily going to be a couple of months since we've seen each other with a lockdown. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, yeah um, likewise. And for people listening, we um, you're someone that I actually knew before getting into comedy. We've known each other for two or three years now um, outside of comedy. Um, yeah. And we started yeah. our comedy journey together, didn't we? So We did. We met through uh, the More In Common um, initiative. Uh, That's right. Three three years ago now, yeah. I think it'll be about three years ago. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I saw a, a bald guy with a beard and a loud shirt and thought, that's, uh, that's my kindred spirit. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, and that's indeed. it ever since. And, yeah. the, and uh, the running joke is that basically we're like father and son. So, because um, right. you are slightly older than me. So uh, if we if we appear over familiar to our listeners, that's what the history is. <laughs> and so you started your history before comedy in performance is poetry. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've always I've always written poetry. Um I got into performing it really through a mutual friend again, through the Morning Common Initiative, uh, a guy called Mohammed Salou that we both know quite well. And mm. uh, really, once I did the, the performance poetry, I've always tried to do it with us. I, I suppose I take after people like John Cooper Clark, who's always been my, my poetry hero. So I always try and inject a bit of stand-up into the links, if you like, a bit of comedy into the poems themselves. So the the transition to, to comedy was quite a natural one. Mm, mm. And and I think um, probably a little bit like me in that you had some sort of history of being able to talk in front of people. Oh, yeah. One yeah. thing you didn't, see, didn't seem to have was it, you weren't – that part of it didn't phase you at all. It was more about getting the content right than – being worried about looking silly, I think, and and that shone through when you when you first started comedy, I think, and uh, I remember your first set very very well. Um, it's one of still one of my um my favourite sets of comedy of anyone I've ever gigged with because it's just so cleverly written because it's all about grammar and language and and uh, all that. So really enjoyed it. Um, You're very kind. I wish you'd do more. I wish you'd do more. <laughs> sort of, you you're one of those people who most of the people I've spoken to comedy is their out their one outlet and you've yeah. got a couple of others so you sort of dip your toe back in now and again come and show us how it should be done and then you bugger off and do poetry for <laughs> um, so it's frustrating but in a good way well if um, you remember when I, when I did the first we, we did the wardrobe together um for yeah. ultra comedy and i said after that that's it it's out of my system now i'll never do another one and i've since done I think nearly thirty. So you you get any money's worth, Graham? <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair <laughs> um. So, what was it then? Especially as you already had an outlet in poetry. Obviously, you say you dabbled a bit with trying to do funny links. What was it that thought I'm going to try and do a, a sort of a straight stand up set? I think just because I, I saw the, I do like to. I've, basically, we're we're talking about mental health, so I'll I'll tell you for now. I, I I'm I've never been diagnosed, but. I'm convinced that if I had been diagnosed as a small boy, um, as a schoolboy, you know, at primary school and later at grammar school, I would, I'm sure, would have been diagnosed as ADHD. Um, mm. My mind was spinning off in different directions all the time. I never shut up. I was hyperactive. I was always wanting to be, the, it was always on my reports, wants to be the class clown. Um, doesn't want to be, you know, doesn't want to get his head down and study. He'd do okay if he get his head down, but he just wants to be the class clown. These sort of things. And I don't know, you may have got similar ones. I don't know. Um, Very much so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I suppose it springs from that. It's, it's My mind's always writing uh, poems and gags and links and things. 
So the only difference is now is I write them down and perform them rather than sort of um, keeping them inside my head. And that that keeps that gives me a focus. It gives me something to do in this lockdown situation. Uh, I've written you know four fifteen hundred word articles for an addiction uh, website. Uh, I've written half a dozen poems, you know, and a few jokes as well. Uh, and it's kept me sane that I've seen people around me saying they're suffering, and really. I've been absolutely fine because I've just escaped into my creativity, if you like. Mm. And that's good. And when you sort of say you think you would have been diagnosed, it's quite funny. But So our mutual friend Jim Bays was on and we were talking about um, his issues, but we were also talking about um, the sort of the dangers of and the frequency of self-diagnosis. But we were sort of talking about it from the point of view of people um, throwing around terms that they don't necessarily really understand. So the kind of yeah. people that say, I'm a bit OCD or I'm a, I'm a bit this or I'm a bit that or I get a bit depressed or whatever without really knowing the depths of it. But, of course, you're someone who um, has a, a, let's say, a deeper knowledge of what those terms will mean and what the impact of them can be because of what you do for your day job, which is you're an addiction counsellor. That's right, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, that's it. Uh, but even even so, and as you say, people will often say to me, oh, I'm a bit this or a bit the other. And I just say, look, I don't want to know about labels. Labels aren't important. I mm. want to know how it feels for you. You know, mm. to say you depressed. Mm. I mean, for example, anxiety. I have a lot of my clients say, oh, you know, I suffer badly with anxiety. Or, you know, I have anxiety. And that can mean different things to different people. Mm. Um, mm. You know, the, the level they can tolerate is different. I mean, what is anxiety but sort of out-of-control worry? I, I, and I want to know how that manifests itself in you. I want to know what effect it has. Can you, you know, does it affect you leaving the house, for example? You mm. know, I, I want to know what effect that, that has. I don't want to know a label. I want to know the reality yeah. of your life, and that's what I'm yeah, trying it's to Yeah, sort of, it's the so what factor, isn't it? Without being crass, it's kind of, so so what does that actually mean then, isn't it? Because, like yeah. you say, there's, there's phrases that can, and it's very easy to dismiss people who you think, well, certainly I find it easy sometimes when I, uh, I sometimes have a knee-jerk reaction to people who, who I think are possibly a little bit guilty of indulging in that, because... I think well, it doesn't look like it's affecting me, but of course, when I when I was suffering my own mental health issues at their worst, people on the outside wouldn't have known. So it's it's very easy to judge, and I'm I'm never going to say I'm not guilty of it. But um, I think it's it's interesting the way people talk, and and these days we're talking a lot more about it. Um, and uh, you know, I, th- I think things like this, conversations like this, are likely to help. But you know, we have to be careful, I suppose, about how we talk about stuff and that's why i'm interested to hear about um kind of your your history with with mental health and, and particularly with addiction so you you are a, a is it specifically alcoholism that you counsel for or is it all kind of kinds of addictions i trained as a person centered counselor so i'm qualified and trained as a counselor in general issues that is to say people will come to me with um depression anxiety grief things like that and i'm trauma that sort of thing and i will i will offer counseling for that i provide counseling for that um and i do three to four hours of that each week um however my speciality is an offshoot it uses counseling skills but it's not counseling per se and that's working as an addiction therapist as um, specializing in alcohol issues I think that's the, mm. the best way to put it. I work exclusively with, with with people who have a problem with alcohol, and I use counselling skills to help them. 
Um, and um, your history is that you you suffered from alcoholism yourself. Um, going yeah. Back some time, isn't that right? And funny if you've hit, you've hit on something there. I, I never ever use the word alcoholism. Mm. Uh, I never use the word alcoholic. Um, I, it's just people who have difficulties with alcohol, people who experience addiction to alcohol. I just it's probably there's a lot of this around the the recovery community. Um, some people, you know, AA members, for example, will wear the badge proudly, and I will use it mm. myself. I will describe myself. Having said I never use it, I do. I will describe myself as an alcoholic because, again, it's that shorthand, isn't it, that people understand. Yeah. And I don't find it pejorative to me to say that. I just find it cuts to the chase with people and tells them what I am. Um, mm. However, there's also a stigma attached to it. There's normal drinkers and alcoholics. And I, I, I get it from a lot of my clients. Oh, not one of them. I don't sit in a park bench. I, you know, I don't miss work. I don't do this. Yeah. I don't do that. And people have always yes. got a get out clause that means they're not on alcohol. I don't drink in the mornings. I don't drink spirits, mm. this sort of thing. And it, 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 people try and escape that stigma by sort of saying what they don't do. But the reality of it is, if your alcohol use is costing you more than money, it's time to look at it. And man, mm. it's certainly crossed that line by quite a bit. But then again, you know, I never lost a job. Um, I never lost a home. I was never even stopped drink driving. Now, I'm pretty darn sure that I was over the limit on a number of occasions. Um, so I could say all that, it's never caused me a problem, but reality mm. inside, I, w- I was dying. I was. Mm. It was causing me huge problems. And and when did you stop drinking? Uh, August the 6th this year, it'll be 17 years uh, since I had a drink. So, yeah. yeah. Got, some, so got some time in. Got some time in, yeah. Mm. You, you know, and, and the one thing I know about you, because we've spoken about this obviously as friends, that um, probably surprised me, but that would be potentially because of ignorance, is that you mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, which are probably the most famous sort of group, um, support group or whatever in the world. Mm. You you didn't go through their programme. You you um, stopped drinking under your own steam, effectively, did you? Or did you use another programme, or, or what did you do? Yeah, it's a funny thing. It's Initially, um, I... Got six months in. I literally, I went in early sobriety, well, abstinence rather than sobriety, because I, I do believe there's a difference. So abstinence, you're hanging on by your fingernails. Sobriety means you're happy with it and you are appreciating the benefits uh, of being alcohol-free. And there is a difference. And after six months of being basically a hermit and going out once, um, I uh, I went to half a dozen AA meetings because I thought, well, these are the guys who you know who have the answers. Um, I should explore this. I've always been, you know, an explorer, always taking an elective approach to things. And I went and I just thought, Do you know what? I've had half a dozen meetings. It, it's not for me. It really it doesn't, it doesn't speak to me. Um, and I went, my solution was to go online, to go on forums and things like that. And at the time, AA pretty much had the hegemony of, uh, of online support. And I, used to, I was actually quite viciously trolled by a few people who were AA zealots, should we say, who mm. took exception to the fact that I didn't sort of go with the 12 steps. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, you'll go back to drinking because AA is the only way. And I've always, 
I don't get along with that single-minded thinking. And yeah, the first year or so was very difficult in that respect. But and I sort of then I decided for my own mental health to pull out and to plot my own path and to actually run um, a an online forum which specifically wasn't AA. And there was a small group of us who who gave each other mutual mutual aid and things like that. And I got through, but. It was a long while before I, I actually um, got over, if you like, my resentment of of, of, of AA and its, some of its members. Mm. And it, it's been recently, I've actually wrote an article quite recently, which put the, I sort of explained the 12 steps in my own language and gave my own spin on it. Um, so I do accept, I mean, for example, AA step 12 is to, is to uh, help the still-suffering alcoholic. And that's something I do every day in my mm. day job. So clearly, I'm adhering to parts of the 12-step program. I just don't identify as a 12-step program. Yeah. And yeah. there's reasons for that. There's reasons people, I believe, there's a certain subset of people which find AA very helpful, and that's great. I'm not one of that subset. And actually, through my work, I would say that a minority of people are. So although AA help a lot of people, they're also missing a lot of people. And that's the people I try and help. That sounds um, rational. It's not that it's horses for courses, I suppose. It's exactly. Rude, isn't it? It's yeah. got to be what works for you. So without wanting to dwell too much on, on the past, when you were um, sort of... I don't know whether the right terminology would be at the peak of your, your drinking, but when you were were kind of, um, you know, in the full throes of, of your addiction, how did that manifest itself in your daily life? You said you didn't lose a job, you didn't get pulled over, you didn't lose your house and all that. How would people say it affected you? How would you say it affected you looking back in terms of your day-to-day life? Um, I was, I, I, I'd always considered myself, and again, we're back to the mental health, I'd always considered myself um, to be a depressive. I don't, you know, if we're talking labels, I, were, I was always say, I've had a problem with depression most of my adult life. And that was my mum identified as a depressive. My mum was a very anxious person uh for a lot of reasons um so i i think i took that on i was oh I, I'm, I'm depressed that's that's my life and i drank to relieve that depression or to, to to attempt to relieve it but actually when i stopped i found my depression lifted so it's a chicken and the egg thing isn't it really um mm. uh my depression um didn't manifest itself as being miserable and this is what i say about labels my depression made me angry um and and quite an angry person um not 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 violent but quite angry resentful and just i used to bottle a lot of it up um as i say it got to the point in the end um where i just i was frozen in that and i couldn't i couldn't move on and i remember vividly sitting in the corner of my living room at the time just rocking back and forth and saying i don't know what to do and mm. I just bottomed out and I just, I, I couldn't go to work. I couldn't function. Uh, I was just in floods of tears. And my wife at the time just said, you're going to the doctors. And the very next day I went to the doctors and it all spilled out. Um, mm. And thankfully, um, I got the I got the help I needed, uh, which was, I, I admitted that 
I had a problem with alcohol. I was drinking too much. And one of the things he did, he gave me antidepressants and mm. referred me to an alcohol specialist, um, a CPN, community psychiatric nurse. And um, in the meantime, I think the the antidepressants brought me to a, a slightly better place, gave me a bit of a foundation to work from. And in three months' time, when I had my first appointment with my CPN, I think it already made the mental shift to think I can do something about this and, and just took it on from there, really. Mm. Um, so that's interesting that, that obviously when you went to see um, your GP, they immediately connected your substance issues with mental health issues. Is that mm. something that you would now say as as a therapist is common then would you say that the, it's a natural thing for them to go hand in hand would you say that everyone who has a substance abuse must therefore a substance abuse issue must therefore have an underlying mental health issue i mean to me as a lay person i would say that seems natural but it, i wouldn't want to fall into the trap of doing that if it wasn't the case well it's funny i have, I have this exact long-running um not an argument but there's a there's a thing i'm sure you've heard in mental health which uh they call dual dual diagnosis, uh, mm. and they'll say someone with addiction issues, you know, has dual diagnosis. Uh, you know, we can't treat him for his mental health. He's drinking too much. He's taking too many drugs, or someone in drug treatment or you know alcohol therapy will say, you know, he, he, yes, he has an, a drugs or alcohol problem, but we can't treat him because his pro- his primary problem is mental health. Dual diagnosis to me is complete flag, it, complete false flag because I have never seen anyone in the grip of active addiction, who hasn't got a mental health problem. Never. Never. <laughs> it yeah. just doesn't I mean, it's, like I say, to me, it makes sense because because it's it's a it's a it's an illness of self destruction that to for me, looking at it, to end up in that kind of place, there must be um something that's triggering or driving that that underpins it i mean my background as you know is that my natural father was was an alcoholic and i never knew him but i've heard so much about him and and the trigger for him seemed to be when he he left the armed forces and had to try and cut it as a kind of a a pleb if you like a civilian um and there seemed to be that at that stage an escalation in his drinking and his his volatility and his, and, and his violence towards my mother and my older siblings, and mm. and and I when I try and put aside the sort of the anger and the the um, the hurt from that, even though I never knew him, that I feel, um, it, it I, I try and when I try and rationalise it, I realise that there must have been a catalyst for it, which must have been something, you know, mental, must have been something to do with his mental health, and and therefore I can't imagine why someone would be end up in the throes of an addiction if there wasn't something else that was needing fixing um mm. because mm. i know plenty of people who who i would say will will when they drink they'll they'll maybe i don't want to use the phrase binge drinking but you know we've, i certainly go out and get go out and have a skinful now and again or whatever in the past and and what have you but then can can never, not drink again for weeks months whatever mm. and don't feel a reliance or, or whatever on it but I'm really aware that when I'm in a bad place mentally, I have to watch my alcohol intake because I know that mm. it doesn't help. So, for example, mm. now during lockdown, I probably am drinking slightly more often, but not mm. massively more often. And it's like a two drink limit um, 
because what I don't want to do is what I would have done in my twenties during this situation is I'd have probably been, you know, a couple of drinks, then crack open a bottle of Jack Daniels or something and, yeah. and just see where the yeah. night takes me. And, and I think my awareness now is that's a, that's a bit of a warning bell or a red flag. So it's mm. interesting that you say you've never seen one without other. Um, and it's kind of reassuring to me, I suppose. Um, in terms of, of you then, obviously you've got your professional theories and what have you, but when you started performing, and we can, we'll include poetry in this because I think the two things are, the, your style of poetry is very similar to your style of stand-up, I think the way you deliver it and your persona. When you first decided, or when, when our friend Mohammed decided that he was going to twist your arm and get you up with a microphone in your hand performing, Mm. What was the the build up to that like? Were you excited, nervous, bit of both? What was the the feeling? I remember well my um, my debut, if you like, for the Batley Poets. Because um, as I say, I've always written poetry, but I, I don't think any of us really value what comes natural to us because it comes natural to us. I've always written poetry. It's a bit of sort of family legend that I wrote my first poem more of a haiku, if you like, when I was four years old, you know, to my nana, when I mm. said to her, uh, she said, she used to have lots of rude sayings, quite politically incorrect <laughs> sayings, but one of the more, um, one of the ones I can say these days, she, she used to say, when wishes were, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. And I, I one day I very, very earnestly said to her as a four-year-old, nana, that's, that's out of date now. Because uh, there's no nobody rides horses and there's no such thing as beggars anymore. What did I know? Eh? And uh, I said it should be if wishes were cars, we'd all drive jaguars. And of course, it tickled me nana to death. And that it was my first poem. So I've always played with words and played with rhyme. Um, so it comes naturally, and I I never really valued that. I never really thought it was anything special. It was a bit of a party trick, and no more. Uh, and then when I got together with Mohammed and we did our, f- our first get-together that I was involved with at Batley Library, uh, I remember our MP, Tracy Brabin, was in the front row laughing her head off. Yeah. And I remember doing it. In, I've done it in front of family and friends and things, uh, but sitting in front of a room, or standing in front of a room with, I don't know, 30 or 40 people in, all of whom were clearly enjoying what I, was, what I had to say, it was it was it was a revelation, and that that sounds like false modesty, but seriously, I was like, "Wow, yeah, I can do this," and I loved it, you know. And and of course, you know, there's the cliche about if you deal with one addiction, another one takes over. So the challenge mm. is to find one that is is a healthy one. And for me, performing ticks that box. I love doing it. I love the buzz. I love the camaraderie and the people that I meet through it. So it, it, it ticks a number of boxes in that respect. But, yeah, part of it is it, it, it's fun showing off, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So. And so the, the one marked difference, I think, between Gem the Poet and Gem the Comic is is content, I suppose, because obviously you're, you know, you're a, a cunning linguist, to use that old bit of <laughs> You know, you yeah, are, but you are, but you do, you do, you love language and you love words, and and clearly in in both you embrace that. But the one thing that to date I've really not seen you do on stage as a comic, but you definitely do with your poetry, is talk about um, sort of 
the social impact of politics. I wouldn't say you talk about politics as such, but I think you you talk you have a there's a strong undercurrent in a lot of your poetry about um, fairness, social justice, um, those kind of things. Um, so whatever the poet version of a keyboard warrior would be, your detractors might call you that. I suppose um, you you know you've done poetry about Brexit and about Theresa May and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, why was it a conscious choice not to to do that as a as a comic? Because really, I don't really recall much in the way of, of political material in your comedy. No, I don't do any. I don't do any any blue stuff, and I don't do any politics. Um, mm. I think there's lots of people. I think like anything else, you try and find your own voice, don't you? Um, there's lots of people doing, uh, for want of a better expression, sexual comedy. There's lots of people. Yeah, you're talking to comedy. ones. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, yeah. and I, I honestly, there's two things for me, and I, it, this is going to sound proper pious, but as you know, I'm a churchgoer. And whatever I do, there are there are exceptions. Obviously, there's little bits of my poetry are sweary, uh, mm. but I, I broadly speaking, my stand up set, my first stand up set, for example, I, I could actually do that to a church crowd. Mm. I just need to take two f bombs out, and it's it's suitable mm. for a family audience. And that, that I suppose when I'm writing is always at the back of my mind. You know, when certainly when I'm posting on social media, I, I'm thinking, will I be happy for this to be read out in church? And that's mm. my sort of internal editor. And again, I, I, I like to try and get a laugh without being obvious, without sort of mm. going for the obvious targets. Someone actually said to me recently, um, who is dyslexic, that I was having to go at dyslexics with my um, you know, grammar Nazi set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I said, actually, no, I'm not. I'm having a go at. He said, you can either punch up or punch down. I said, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm look. I, I look like I'm punching down, but actually, I'm mocking myself. I'm, I'm mo- mocking my own pomposity about about yeah. grammar and spelling. And really, I'm turning that humour. I'm making myself look ridiculous by my obsession with with that. I said, so I'm not having a go. I'd hate people to think I was having a go at dyslexics, and I'm not. There's no mention of dyslexia in there or anything, is there? So I think it's I think it's that thing of you're always going to get someone who, who thinks you're talking about them and, and you know, yeah. can't help that. But no, yeah. it's definitely not a cruel cruel material. So it's it's, a, it's probably the, among the most innocuous st- sort of stuff that an anecdotal comic can do. I think. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that. I don't mean innocuous in, as in it's not certainly not bland or. Whatever, but it's certainly not offensive. I, I must tell you because our, our, a mutual friend of ours, um, our my the Silver Fox, our vicar Martin, um, yeah. who's my vicar, not yours. He yeah. watched my first ever set. And I don't know if I ever told you what he said, but I was no. I was mortified when he watched my first ever set because it is filthy. Um, <laughs> he came up to me in church in his dog collar and said, "I watched your stand up," and I and I was like, in inside, I was going, "Oh shit!" <laughs> and he said. I thought the sex stuff was really funny, but some of the language was a bit much. And I was like, and I, and I immediately said, I'd really thought it'd have been the other way around. I really, I genuinely thought that's it'd a been fair the other impression way. of Martin, though. It's yeah, it's not bad. But that was the fear. And, and when you talk about having that inner editor, it's something I've, I've, I've wanted to be able to do, but I genuinely don't think I can have. I don't have that filter, and you'll know that from how I am on social media as well. I end up in all yeah. kinds of arguments and all kinds of problems. I wanted, and you'll know this from from our sort of journey through the early days of comedy together. I really wanted to 
to go on stage and be um, a, a, a clever, insightful, firebrand kind of political comic. Uh, you know, in terms of of political comedy, my heroes are the likes of Bill Hicks and Mark yes. Thomas and people yeah, like that. Same really, here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really, you know, understand the issues, educate the audience about the issues, and get the audience fired up about them. And then I, I, I realise that any time I try to venture down that route, and I don't know if it's me, I don't know if it's the climate over the last five years or a bit of both, but I fear losing half the room, and then I suddenly become very conscious that yeah, yeah, how easy it is to just go on off on a rant. So I, that's why yeah. I just now do filth, and and it works for me. But um, yeah. in terms of um, the the sort of I don't know the symbiosis or, or or other of comedy and mental health, and there's a big thing, and this is where this podcast was born out of, really, of a big kind of conception, and I think it's probably an accurate one that most comedians have, you know, the overwhelming majority have some kind of history or or current mental health issues. What's your take on that? Do you think that's a truism? Do you think it's a apocryphal? What, what do you think? I, you know, I, I think. Everyone has mental health issues. It's not just com- comics. I mean, mm. the, the cliche is the Tony Hancock thing, isn't it? You know, yeah. the tears of a clown, all the rest of it. You, you know, he was so de- he's such a depressive, but his persona on stage was so well. His, his persona on stage was pretty glum, wasn't it? But yeah, you know, was, this yeah. this cliche of the uh, of the comedian as, as you know someone who's is suffering mental distress is it is a cliche, and I think. I don't know whether the incidence of mental health problems in, in you know in the performance arts broadly is any different to that of the general population. Um, I can only speak for myself when I say that for me, um, it's it, it, my job is therapy for myself, and my mm-hmm. hobbies are therapy for myself because if I don't think something is doing me good these days. I don't do it. If I think something is on the healthy behaviour, I don't do it. Um, I, th- I think what, what there is in, in, in comedy and performance arts generally is that the, the buzz of performing is very hard to replicate if you're not performing. Mm. And that's the, the, one of the frustrations at the moment. We miss it so much. And I think a lot of performers step off stage and are still chasing that bu- buzz and will chase drink or drugs to get it. Um, yeah, that's I, the danger, isn't it? Is the because, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you're you're someone who obviously has your your history with with um, sort of a dependence on alcohol, um, and yet you're particularly not less so with poetry, perhaps, but particularly with comedy. If you want to go and do a gig very rarely will there be a comedy gig in somewhere that isn't a place that's primary function is to sell booze. Yeah, um, yeah, true. So some outsiders might argue you're kind of placing yourself potentially in harm's way. I think for me the, the interesting thing talking to people about throughout this podcast is that I know people outside the industry who don't understand why anyone with a, a potentially history of mental health would potentially poke the bear by going on stage and risking dying on your ass and then being in a really low mood for however long. Um, but of course with you, you've got the, the, the extra sort of double edged sword of you're surrounded by booze. I've never once seen you look anything other than um, absolutely comfortable and, and 
um, I've never once thought, oh, this might go otherwise. But what do you say to those people who sort of say, hang on a minute, Jim, why would you spend so much time in a pub in a situation where your temptation might be to reach for a pint? Well, a couple of things. I mean, again, it comes from poetry. My experience with, with poetry is that it is a lovely scene full of friendly people, it, mainly in mm. cafes as opposed to bars. You will look around a, a, a performance poetry room you might see a couple of halves of lager, and but most people are drinking coffee or soft drinks. I would say also a good twenty-five percent, maybe that's higher. I don't know of, of poets are in recovery, um, mm. so you're meeting a lot of like-minded people in a very relaxed atmosphere. And unlike most social situations in this country, it's not around the booze; it's around the words and the camaraderie. So that was mm. my foundation. Then I shifted to comedy. Again, I'm so far down the line, I don't even notice people drinking anymore. But the irony of it is, I tell you what, there wasn't enough booze in the world to get me to stand up and do karaoke. I just would never do it. I just By the time I drank enough to stand up there with a mic, I wouldn't be able to speak anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, you know, that is the thing. I, I drank to make me confident. It actually made me timid. And now I don't drink anymore. I've got confidence to spare. And just going on for what you're saying about finding your voice comedically, I think if you don't go out there thinking this is the funniest shit you'll hear, you'll die on your ass. Mm. End of. You've got to absolutely think you belong. Yeah. You've got to own it. And you've got to, the one mm. time I've died, it was because the guy that came on before me, uh, I just thought, God, I'm not as good as him. And I went out with that in my head and I died. And mm. I, I know afterwards, looking at it, that's what I've done. I talked myself out of that gig. But yeah. nowadays, I go on, you know, basically, if I go on there, if you don't think this is funny, it's your fault, not mine, because this is the funniest shit you'll hear today. Um, yeah. And I don't, going back to what we were saying before about, you know, blue and political stuff, just because I don't do it doesn't mean say I don't find it funny. I find your stuff hilarious, as I'm sure you know, I've sat in the front row mm. often enough. People <laughs> like um, Keith Wilde, yeah. You know, his his show closer when he gets the whole pub or bar or whatever singing, I think he's utterly hilarious. Mm. Um, so, you know, my my own tastes as a, an audience member are quite different to those as a performer, um, which sounds like a really long-winded answer. But but basically, I'm not I'm not at all uncomfortable in licensed premises yes. these days. It doesn't it doesn't even register on my radar. It might have done mm. ten years ago, not anymore. Not anymore. And you've become a bit of a, a connoisseur of the alcohol-free uh, beer ranges that are now much better than they used to be. When I, I remember, this was, this is a story that'll make you laugh. I um, I ended up, as a 16-year-old, was probably my worst drinking experience. I had was out with some lads and drank enough to end up hospitalised as a 16-year-old. Really, really badly. I'd had so much. Um, and um, as a 16-year-old, I swore off the booze for the first time in my life. I said yeah. to my mum, had to pick me up from hospital. Um, and uh, my mum, bless her, being a Glaswegian um, who was the wife of a, or the ex-wife of an alcoholic, decided the way to snap me out of it was when she, t- she picked me up from hospital that morning, we went to the seaside and she made me have fish and chips for brunch um, <laughs> to make me feel <laughs> even worse. Uh, yeah. And I said, to, yeah, it was just like, you're eating those. You, you are eating those. You know. And then uh, and I said to her, do you know what, mum, I think I'm giving a drink up. I was 16. I mean, that's a record, I think, for most people. <laughs> um, but I had a party to go to that week um, 
and I thought I don't want to. I was already sick of people getting in touch about it because the word travels fast, um, and so I took to this party, um, Caliber, the old. I think it was made. Was it made by Guinness? I'm not sure, but the I old alcohol was, yeah. food I think lager. It was, yeah. yeah, and it. I took. I, I decanted it into a glass because I thought, ah, oh, that way people won't know. And I can just put, you know, and I had two sips, and I was like, no, balls to that, it's awful. It was pretty but disgusting. Much, they are yeah. really good these days, aren't they? I've tasted yeah, some of the yeah. ones, and, and you know, so. But again, a lot of people would say, a lot of, certainly, I'd imagine the AA lot would be, yeah, yeah, you spot on. Yeah. The thought of you drinking something that had the taste of alcoholic drinks. So, mm. um, but you, you really enjoy them, do you? Yeah, and again, it, the AA thing is the AA is what used to really irritate me is they have they have a lot of catchphrases and cliches and little trite statements they come out with, which used to really wind me up. Not so much anymore, because I actually use some of them myself. But one of the ones they use is non-alcoholic beers for non-alcoholics. And I, I never drank it for the taste. Well, actually, I did. I genuinely enjoy that hoppy taste of beer, and I missed it. And again, I've, I've taken part in a couple of online polls about this. It's about 50-50 people. Some people will say, no, can't do that. That would trigger me. And the other people will say, do you know what? Don't bother me at all. Um, there's one occasion, oddly enough, and it just shows the psychological impact of this. There's a particularly hoppy one. Um, I always think it's called Mother's Ruin, but it's not. It's called oh Nanny States. Nanny States, a brew dog one. Mm. And it's really, really hoppy. And uh, my sister got me some one Christmas and I was halfway through a glass and honestly, I was feeling like I was getting a bit drunk and I gave it back. I said, I can't drink that. I said, I know it's zero, but it's, it's playing with my head. So no, I've drunk it since quite happily. Exactly. Yeah. And and conversely as well, I've caught my nephew before now drinking my Bex Blue. And I've said to him, you're drinking my beer? And he's like, no, it's not. It's my Bex. And he looks at the label. Oh, you're right. He, he, Your brain says you're drinking booze, so you're drinking booze. That can be dangerous. But, I mean, I, my tipple was, was, was special brew. And nothing mm. tastes like that. Um, <laughs> Thank God. So... <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? <laughs> I, I loved the job, it. That was the man. thing. Oh, mate. But oh, yeah, I I never uh, I've never had a problem when I've, I've I've had one or two Bex Blues or whatever and thought all oh, right now that's lined me up for the spot of the hard stuff. But then again, I don't think I drank it. I don't think I drank alcohol free for probably a good year. Mm. Um, I just don't like soft drinks. I don't like they're too sweet for me. I like that hoppy taste, and for me, it mm. works. Uh, it freaked my sister in law out the first time she saw me doing it. Funnily enough. She really, really worried her, but it's something that, again, I've done for 15 or 16 years, so mm. I think I know what I'm doing at this point. So, obviously, we're in the midst of the lockdown, um, so I'm speaking to you now in sort of, um, it's the 8th of May as we record this, so we're just waiting in a couple of days' time for um, dear old Boris to announce the latest measures, whatever they may be, but what's your, um, what's the thing you're missing most that you're going to want to do first when, when lockdown's over? Um, I think hugs, definitely. I'm quite a huggy <laughs> person. I'm missing um I'm missing the company of my friends, I'm missing the company of comedians and poets and colleagues. Uh, I work mm. in a wonderful office. I mean obviously the the work I do, there's there's quite a lot of nasty things happen. 
Um, you know, we lose people. Um, and it's a sort of office where if one of your clients, you know, dies in hospital or, or whatever, um, and obviously there's an impact on you, the, the, your colleagues will step up and say, do you want to talk? Are you okay with this? And it's that sort of, the, if I went into work one day, for example, and I've done this, I've, I've cried in the office, and mm-hmm. I know that no one would even think that was unusual. They'd, they'd be supportive and they'd, they'd, they'd be kind and good to me and, and make sure I'd got the support I needed, and then we'd all move on. It's a, mm-hmm. it, it's just a, it's a lovely environment to work in. Um, and I miss that. I miss that closeness. And I think doctors and nurses and people like firemen, ambulance men, uh, will say in those sort of jobs, you've all got each other's backs. Mm. And once you've once you've experienced that from your colleagues, you, you, I don't think you can move into something like retail or something like it. Just isn't the same. Because I've yeah. come from retail into this, and I'll tell you what, the difference is astonishing. You know, my colleagues mm. are so supportive, and I, and I miss them. We have a Zoom meeting every morning, which really, really helps. Um, but again, I miss the company of, of the people I work with. So that's the biggest thing for me. Uh, mm. We have a great laugh, but they're also just some of the warmest, most wonderful people I've ever met. Simple as that. That shines through with the way you talk about them, mate. That's great. Mm. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll get some normality back at some point. And uh things get back to normal but so we're drawing to a close it's been fascinating talking to you and i think as i said to you before when i asked you to do it your insight because you kind of come at this from a couple of different angles is is really interesting um but i do have a question for you and it's it's one that i'm I'm asking everyone although um and and i kind of uh, this is the first one where i'm not not 100 sure of the answer so we'll see how it goes but if um if i could wave a magic wand and take away all of your sort of uh, issues in the past with, with uh, substances and mental health issues and all of that and make it so that you're on an even keel with no addiction problems, no mental health problems for the rest of your life. But the price was you could never get up and perform again, be that comedy or poetry or a bit of both. What would you say? Absolutely not. I wouldn't lose <laughs> a single experience of a mental health or my addiction or anything because without that, I would never have trained to do what I do, which I love. Um, I counsel other people, but I also counsel myself. I think is it Socrates who said, "An unexamined life isn't worth living." And uh, not only was a cracking number eight for Brazil, he was a pretty good philosopher as well. <laughs> uh, I was just about to compliment you on the first mention of Socrates. In um, this we had the closest we've come is uh, Sam Serrano mentioned Hannah Montana. Um, oh. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, but yeah, and then you you put in that awful but very good pun, uh, very good. So no, but I'm I'm relieved actually because I think I think because of you have that sort of added um, unknown factor for me of of having the addiction issues. I wasn't sure whether you might say actually, you know, I'd rather have gone down a massively different route or what have you. But it's so far it's 100. percent No one would give it up well, for whatever reason, yeah. you know. And it's it's uh, it's interesting. It's really interesting. I think if you you know we addicts have a, have a saying. I don't understand normies. We don't understand someone who can go in the pub and have one drink and go home. It's mm. like how can you do that? Um, mm. So if I'd always been normal, I wouldn't have an appreciation of where I am now. The fact mm. that I've I've experienced difficulties and overcome them and grown from them gives me an appreciation of how good this life is. 
and that's mm. not an appreciation I think that that everyone has, and I wouldn't swap that for the world. I really wouldn't. Mm. That's been that's brilliant, and it's this is a, a bittersweet one for me because it's making me miss you because we do <laughs> see each other quite often, <laughs> and uh, and just thinking back to when you came around mine for a curry not that long since, and how nice it would be to do that again. So we'll have to do that. Absolutely, over, but, absolutely. Uh, just get it in the calendar as soon as we can. Absolutely. I just want to thank you for coming on. It's been great, and you've been so open and honest, and and that's it's really important and. and lovely to hear um that you're in a good place especially with lockdown because i think lockdown's affecting a lot of people in a, a really profound way and to hear that you're able to cope because of your outlets is fantastic so i'm really yeah pleased. i'm good um, i'm good and uh thank you for coming on and uh love to the wife as well i hope she's all right and give her my best love to yours too and we'll get together as soon as this as soon as we can after this is over okay jim stewart thank you very much cheers big man take care mate bye-bye Okay, so that was episode eight of Sparks of Madness, um, featuring Jem Stewart. Uh, I think it, what's clear that comes across is that the us two do have a, a decent relationship outside of comedy as well. But I hope what's also clear is that um, Jem's got a really sort of clear view on the links between addiction and mental health, and also how how some people have a a different need from the most tried and trusted routes. So, you know, James says quite clearly that AA was not for him um, and there are other ways of managing your addiction. So that's interesting too. Um, if you have listened and enjoyed the podcast, I would ask, we have some regular listeners, it would be really nice if you could either leave some reviews on the podcasting sites or I'm finally going to set up a Facebook page for the pod. So a review there would be nice as well. So just search Sparks of Madness on Facebook. It should be up and running by the end of today or tomorrow um so that's uh, the first uh, full monday in in july 2020 so that should be live soon it'd be lovely to hear your views apart from those people who've been kind enough to message me directly and say that they found it useful helpful interesting or whatever so like subscribe share spread the word um and stay safe and we'll be back next week with another episode cheers bye-bye Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a Gag and Bone Man comedy production.